I will be reading the scripture today, and it comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, and this is the NIV version from the hymnal, from the, you guys know what I mean. Um, (laughs) At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with, whom, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Good morning to you all. I just want to begin by just recognizing the loss of, of our brother Albert. I got a chance to see Albert on, um, I guess it was Thursday morning, and he wasn't doing well, but certainly <clears throat> I don't think we're expecting him to, uh, to die that quickly, and so we just want to really keep Lana and, and uh, the Van Pelt family in our thoughts and prayers. I encourage you to, we'll have the service here next Sunday. It'll be at 3.30. So just want to let you know about that. So Happy New Year to y'all. I, any, uh, <clears throat> any New Year's resolutions out there? I don't know if there I, I don't. I didn't think I was going to do any New Year's resolutions, but there's something almost irresistible to me about making a resolution. This idea when you arrive on January 1st that this thing you've been wanting to do, uh, is perhaps something you've wanted to change in your life, that's been really challenging. All of a sudden, January 1st makes that seem maybe it's possible. It's, it's a fresh start. It's a new beginning. And I think there's something appealing about that. Uh, so after the, the day after New Year's, I think it was Tuesday, I was here at church, and I thought, you know, I'm going um, to try to get back to eating sugar only one day a week. So like Friday, oftentimes our family has dessert. Friday evening, we have a special meal. And I've aspired to do that in the past, and... It, it, it hasn't really worked out very well. So the first day, I'm at church, and the, the funeral home had dropped off some chocolates before Christmas. I didn't have a chocolate. Um, did good. I got home, and uh, I opened up one of our cupboards, and there were some mini M&Ms. And just like that, the resolution was done. It was like five hours. And here's the sad thing about it. I don't even really like M&Ms. Like in many M&Ms, I mean, they're not even that good. It'd been one thing if I would have succumbed to like really good dark chocolate or pie or ice cream or something, but many M&Ms, it was just really a sad end to that resolution. So today, kind of a couple things here going on in our service. Epiphany was marked this week, and also it's the day we recognize the baptism of Jesus, and that's where I'm going to be focusing today. And I think it's an appropriate passage for the first Sunday of the new year because it contains both a new beginning and temptation, these things that I mentioned that we often associate with the new year. And in the other Gospels, we get, we get, quite a, we get some background on Jesus, and especially in Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke. We find out Jesus' genealogy. We find out the circumstances of his birth. But in Mark's gospel, if you notice, it's really abrupt. We don't get any of that. There's just this 
guy from the hills of Nazareth that kind of emerges in the mist, this solitary guy that steps into the baptismal line with the others to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. There's nothing that looks impressive about this guy. He doesn't come from uh, an impressive place. Nazareth is kind of nowheresville. I, I don't think he probably looks super impressive. But there's something about that baptism when he comes out of the water that something dramatic does happen. The, the heavens are torn open. I want you to notice that. That's what Mark says. It's, it's not that the, there's like this kind of gentle clouds that were kind of parting. No, Mark is very specific about his language. He says that the heavens are ripped open. Right? So we, sometimes we think about heaven as kind of up there, but I don't know how far would you have to go up there to get to heaven. I think heaven is more the unseen realm of God. And so what's happening is this, this curtain is being pulled back, and just for a minute, the seen world, this world, and the unseen world, there's this gap, and it's been ripped open. There's been a, a curtain that's been torn open. Think about the difference between opening and tearing something. Something about like you, 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 um, you unbutton your shirt and you rip it off like the Incredible Hulk, right? There's, there's something different about that. There's, there's something about when you rip something open that it's not going to be put back together easily. And, and in the Bible, often something cataclysmic is happening that can't be undone when that happens. As one person wrote, when Jesus comes out of the water, all heaven breaks loose. I like that. All heaven breaks loose. So through this tear, again, we've got this unseen world that's opened up, and through this tear in the fabric between the seen and the unseen comes the Spirit. Uh, it comes like a dove. It's not a dove, but it comes like a dove. And uh, the impression that I often think about, maybe from my upbringing, is that the Spirit is very gentle, right? So, so oftentimes we talk about like the Spirit nudges you. I don't know if anybody else used that language or... The spirit kind of whispers something. This is not the, the gentle spirit. Look at verse 12. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And that word sent does not do justice to what the original language says. It's, it's cast out. He's driven out. Right? Kind of almost, it almost reminds me of somebody driving out livestock into the wilderness. Like, like it or not, you're going to the wilderness. And it's at once. Right? Jesus is baptized at once, there's no, I mean, think about the way we do baptisms here. There's no celebration, there's no gift, there's no carry-in meal, right, on the banks of the Jordan, as we do. Uh, the Spirit wastes no time. Why? Because the Spirit wants to get Jesus out to meet Satan, right? That's, that's what happens here, isn't it? It's like quite a start to Jesus' ministry. And did you notice this little, there's other little detail, like Mark's account of the temptation is so much smaller, but he, he includes the wild animals, the wild beasts, as some translation. So Jesus is, is he's driven out in the wilderness to meet Satan, and the wild beasts are there, which sounds pretty foreboding to me. So we have this scene kind of set, it's like an epic battle. There's this kind of uh, rumble in the jungle, a rumble in the desert, if you want to call it. We have it in one corner, Jesus, newly baptized, supported by a crew of angels, and in the other, Satan and the wild beasts. I mentioned earlier there's, uh, there's something to me that's almost irresistible about New Year's resolutions. And I, I know I'm not alone because I looked at a, 
probably a bunch of surveys. I looked at one survey and it said 37% of Americans uh, had a goal they were going to achieve in 2023. And, and I don't think there'll be any big surprises here. here. This survey, here's the most popular one. Save more money, exercise more, eat healthier, spend more time with family and friends, lose weight. And here's the statistic in this survey that really stood out to me. Of the people, I guess the 37% of people who said they were going to uh, keep a resolution, 87% said they were very or somewhat likely to keep it through the year. It's like, yeah, we got no, no problem. I'm going to make this resolution, no problem. And like, even, they must have a lot better track record of New Year's resolutions than mine. Because it sounds completely delusional for me, for 87% of people to say, yeah, we, we got this. Right, and the reality is it's like 1% will make it to 12 months, right? And yet, despite our abysmal track record, many of us, and I'm kind of one of them, will return again and again to these resolutions. Why? Why are they so irresistible to some of us? Well, I think for some of us, it offers a reset. That's not a bad thing. It's nice to have something come once a year where you can say, I'm going to put this behind me and I'm going to start over. I'm going to have a new beginning. And I think that's understandable. But I think for some of us too, there's this idea that if we look ahead and we look ahead to January 1st, 2025, and we imagine ourselves having accomplished that resolution, having accomplished that elusive goal that we struggle to do year after year, we can imagine how much better our lives are going to be. I mean, maybe if we, just, if we peel back the layers a little more, if we kind of allow ourselves to be a little more vulnerable, we can, we can think that if we can, if we can accomplish that elusive goal, maybe we'll arrive. Maybe we'll be enough. Like there's this place on the horizon that in our minds, somehow the troubles will be gone, which is quite different than what we see, I think, in Scripture. Notice how how complicated and difficult life Jesus gets after his beginning, after his baptism. We don't know a lot of details about his early life. We get some of them for the other Gospels, none in, in Mark's. But I think it's safe to say that Jesus' life gets a lot harder after his baptism. Like he hasn't even, he's barely even dried off from the water of the Jordan when the Spirit is driving him to meet Satan in the wilderness with wild beasts. If Satan doesn't scare you, how about the wild beast? Does that, that sounds scary. I guess not. You guys must do that. You guys must go out into the wilderness with the wild beasts uh, more than I do. I wonder if Jesus was ever like nostalgic about Nazareth. Like, I wonder if he ever wanted to be, go back to being a carpenter. Like a simpler life, small town, Galilee in the hills, working with his hands. It sounds kind of like a, should be a country song maybe in there somewhere. Simpler times. Because immediately after his baptism, he's got new challenges, he's got new temptations, he's got new problems. I think it's the same with us. Our baptism, our decision to unite our lives with Jesus Christ, to make this public profession of faith, I'm going to follow this guy, is a glorious event. And we should do, I, I really try to do everything we can to mark and celebrate anytime someone is baptized in this congregation. Because it's a big deal. I want to make it even a bigger deal. But I think we need to recognize, and this is hard, baptism introduces new problems into our life, new challenges into our life. 
which is actually exactly what Jesus promised. In chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, which is the, kind of the, the, the fulcrum, the midpoint of the gospel, uh, Peter has this incredible moment of clarity when he gets who Jesus is. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. Right? It should be this moment of celebration. Finally, someone understands, except for you know, the evil spirits seem to know who Jesus is, but now it's a disciple who understands who Jesus is, and then Jesus says, I'm going to suffer I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. You want to be my disciple? You want to follow me? You're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and die to yourself. So here's the challenge for me. That, that, that path, that beginning, that following Jesus is almost completely the opposite of the path that my New Year's resolutions are supposed to take me on. The path of my New Year's resolutions is supposed to move me to greener pastures, to greater things. It moves up and to the right to greater success. I don't want to deny myself. I want to improve myself. I don't want to lose my life. I want a better life. But here's, here's another problem with this. If I can't make it five hours without collapsing in the face of many M&Ms, like, what chance do I have moving out into the wilderness and into this testing that comes as a disciple? Because I think we need to recognize that Jesus is being tempted. He's being tested. I want to say that again. Jesus is being tempted. I think it's easy to come to this passage and say, yeah, but he's the son of God. How hard was it really to say no when you're the son of God? Are you really tempted well, the gospel writer Mark uses the language of temptation because I think he believes that Jesus was really tempted. For New Year's Day, uh, we had black-eyed peas. It's my wife's tradition. I'm still not quite on board with it, but it's okay. All right, Anybody else black-eyed peas on New Year's? I think it's a thing. Maybe it's in the South. I don't mind black-eyed peas. I'll eat black-eyed peas. Um, they taste fine. Uh, the extras sat in our fridge all week. I, I can tell you, I was never once tempted this week to like just <laughs> consume those black-eyed peas, right? You just start with one spoon, and then you just can't stop. And before you know it, you've eaten the whole thing of black-eyed peas, right? Now, like you, Ben and Jerry's ice cream last night, I, I took one bite, and I wanted to eat the whole pint. I'm like, some people do that. I think it's okay to eat the whole pint. Um, that is a temptation, right? Something's not a temptation if it doesn't tempt us. And I think if the Bible speaks about being Jesus being tempted, I think we need to assume that Jesus is being tempted and tested by Satan. So how's this going to play out? Jesus, the angels, Satan, the wild beasts. This is an epic clash. If you are a gambling man, bet on Satan. Bet on Satan. Because if you look back at the history of Israel, you will see an abysmal record in their ability to resist temptation. The Israelites, you notice he's number 40. It's kind of cluing us in. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, didn't do so well in their testing. The most epic failure, again, 40 days, number 40 again. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. Uh, to, he's receiving the Ten Commandments. The ink has barely dried on the commandments. He comes back down. His brother Aaron has crafted a golden calf. They've broken the first commandment, right? Their record is abysmal. Others have failed. Others have always failed. And yet this solitary guy from Nazareth comes along. He takes the full brunt of Satan's onslaught. 
Satan throws everything he has at Jesus, and he succeeds. He succeeds where everyone else has failed. How does he do it? I think this is a really interesting thing about this passage. How is Jesus equipped to do that? If he really is being tempted, which I would say absolutely he's being tempted, then how has he been equipped to be resolute, to resist that temptation? Well, look, look at what the words come from. When the heavens are ripped open and this unseen world, these words come from this unseen world, look at the words he hears. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Right, this is really, this is critical that we see this. Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tested, but he is equipped. How is he equipped? He's first told, you are my son. This is probably an allusion to Psalm 2, which is a psalm that celebrates the enthronement of a king to rule over God's people. So Jesus is being told by the Father, you are the king that will rule over the people. And this is going to be important because as Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, as he moves out into ministry, He's going to be constantly questioned about whether he really is a king, right? He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look super impressive. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't rule the way kings do. I mean, at one point he's washing feet, not what we think about kings. He doesn't, he, he, people don't recognize him as a king, and when they do recognize him as a king, his crucifixion, they have a sign that says the king of the Jews, but they're, they're mocking him, Right? Lots of voices in Jesus' ministry are going to question him. Are you really a king? Where does your authority come from? Where did you get this authority? That's a question that Jesus has asked. And what Jesus does is he sends them back to his baptism. I'm secure in my authority because I heard the voice at my baptism. But he's not just told that he's a king. He's told that he's beloved. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well Please, right? This is similar language if you actually look back at the story of Abraham who takes his son Isaac up on the mountain. Uh, Here's the voice, take your son, your only son who you love, right? So, so I want you to see in this baptism, this is a tender moment. Yes, there's going to be testing. It's going to be trouble. But this, the first thing is a tender moment between a heavenly parent and a child in which the father looks at the son and says, you are my dear, dear child. Eugene Peterson in the message He says it this way, You are my son, chosen and marked by my love, pride of my life. So before Jesus is sent into the wilderness, he's equipped with the knowledge that he is the beloved son of God. And when Jesus gets to the wilderness, uh, he confronts Satan. Guess where Satan begins to attack? Again, I'm going to have to pop over to another gospel because we don't get this in Mark. I usually don't particularly love doing that, but, but, but we don't get a lot of details in Mark. What, in Matthew's gospel, though, what are the temptations? Do you remember the first couple temptations to Jesus? They begin with the word if. If you're the son of God. Right? Do you see what Satan's doing with this word if? He's trying to sow seeds of doubt in Jesus' mind. Jesus has just been baptized. He's just been given his identity. He's just been told he's beloved. He goes out and Satan says, if you are the son of God. You just got baptized. You're in the wilderness. You're by yourself. You're hungry. What kind of loving father does that? Let's give Satan, let's give Satan credit. I don't think Satan's going to waste his energy kind of jabbing, kind of attacking in areas that he doesn't think are, are, are where he's going to be able to land a punch. Like Satan doesn't, you know, tempt us with black-eyed peas if we want nothing to do with black-eyed peas. Satan is going to look for an opening. He's going to look for what he thinks is a vulnerability. That's what he does with Jesus. 
You think you, you really are who you think you are? You're really the son of God? You're really beloved? Really? Do you see? I mean, that's, that's so often in the Bible the way Satan works. It's very subtle. Same thing in the garden. Did God really tell you this? It's very subtle. He tempts and Jesus resists. Again, everyone who has come before Jesus has failed, but the one that comes from the hills of Nazareth succeeds where all others have failed. He rejects the lies of Satan, and he instead holds fast to the truth that he heard from his father at his baptism. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. If Jesus has the security of the love of the father, he has all he needs in the wilderness. And one of the beautiful and, and I think mysterious things that we read in Scripture is that somehow at our baptism, we are united with Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 6 when he says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into, that key word there, into Christ Jesus, and were baptized into his death? Right? And Paul says that when we are baptized into Jesus' death, we are then baptized into his burial and his resurrection. We are raised to new life. We are a new creation. We have a new beginning. And because we are baptized into Jesus, who is the Son of God, we are then adopted as sons and daughters of God into this family of God. And this is important, right? Because now, as we are adopted into the family of God, as we are united with the Son, the words that are spoken to the Son are spoken to us. The Father looks at you, the Father looks at me and says, You are my son, you are my daughter, you are my dear, dear child, and I'm delighted with you. You're my beloved. You're marked by my love. You are the pride of my life. In other words, I think what we hear is you're enough. You see how differently this is than the way we typically operate in our culture? The way we tend to think, see things is if I, can, if I can work hard enough, if I can make enough money, if I can get educated enough, if I can have enough success, if I can lose enough weight, if I can do enough exercise, at some point down the road, I'm going to be enough. I will have arrived. I'll be okay. And when I'm there, my problems will be gone. The, it's so different, the path of Jesus. The path of Jesus is you are beloved, and now you've got some new problems. But it starts with you are enough. Because Jesus and God know that if we are going to move out as disciples into temptation, we are going to have to know from the very beginning that we are enough. That is how we are to face the temptations and trials that we face as disciples. Right? Remember, Jesus says, you want to follow me? You're going to follow me into deserts. You're going to follow me into wilderness. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to lose your life. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Yes, we will have trouble, but Jesus has entered into the trouble of the world, a fallen and broken sinful world. He has faced the temptation and powers of darkness, and he has won the way back to the tree of life for his people, for those who put their trust in him. Right? The only way that we can follow after this Jesus is because he has blazed a path before us. And because he equips us for the journey, he gives us his spirit and he gives us what I think we most desperately crave to be enough, to be beloved. And T. Wright says it this way, 
If we start the journey imagining that our God is a bully, an angry, threatening parent ready to yell at us, slam the door on us, or kick us out into the street because we haven't quite made the grade, we will fail at the first whisper of temptation. But if we remember the voice that spoke those powerful words of love, we will find the way through. We will find the way through because we have heard the words, you are the beloved. And not only that, we have someone who gets us. Oftentimes when we think about our commitment to Jesus Christ, we think rightly of our commitment to Jesus as Lord and our commitment to our trust that Jesus is our Savior. We often, I think, forget that Jesus is our brother. Don't forget that Jesus is your brother. This is going to be really important. And this is why this is so important that you understand that Jesus was actually tempted because Jesus knows what it's like in the wilderness Whatever you're facing right now is not a surprise to Jesus. He's been there, and he's with us now, right? If we read in that passage, one of the cool things is that Mark says is that the angels were attending. The angels were pouring out the love of the Father into the Son those 40 days. They helped see him through, and we trust that our brother Jesus will see us through our trials.